I think it's appropriate that one of those precious little ones said that Adam and Eve lived at the beach. <laughs> About half of my church is watching from the beach this morning, so that's your way of being engaged in the worship service. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn to the first page. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I want to begin a sermon series with you just for the month of July called How It All Started. For those of you who are guests of ours, we've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians for the better part of this year, and in August, I'm going to dive right back into that, and I cannot wait. But during the month of July, the leaders of our church graciously, seven, eight, nine years ago, uh, gave me the privilege of taking some much-needed time to renew and, and to rest and to refuel, but there are five Sundays this month. And so I wanted to take the first one to kick off this series. And over the next five weeks, uh, our pastors here on our team will be leading you. And you're going to see that God's Word is rich and that God has blessed us richly with some great preachers as they'll be coming and preparing to lead you each and every week through this sermon series. So the team of guys that will be preaching this month both at the Central Campus and at the Woodruff Campus, got together a couple of months ago and we began to build this series. And we were asking the question, what could we do during the month of July uh, to, to change gears a bit and to take people back to the beginning of our faith? We are walking through a New Testament book in 1 Corinthians, so it just made sense to grab some time this summer and to go to the Old Testament and to take a second look at some of those most famous Bible stories. In fact, over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to do. Stories about Adam and Eve. Stories about Moses and his boat. Got you. It's Noah. Noah and his boat. Stories about Moses. Stories about Jacob. Stories about Abraham and Isaac. And so we're going to take five of the most well-known stories in the book of Genesis, and we're going to take a second look at them, asking the question, how did all this get started? Tomorrow, our nation turns 246. 246 years ago, on July 4, 1776, our fine founding fathers there in Pennsylvania signed the Declaration of Independence. Now, that doesn't mean that the United States of America existed on that day. It means that the beginning of the United States of America existed on that day because it was that day uh, that the elected officials of the colonies said, we are not going to sit under the rule of England. We don't believe in taxation without representation. And so we're going to declare ourselves independent. And, of course, they wrote the Declaration of Independence. They signed it. They sent it over to the King of England, and he was not happy. And our nation, of course, entered into a war that would win our freedom and start the seedbed for what has become the United States of America. And tomorrow, all over our nation, people will don their red, white, and blue, and the fireworks will be displayed in the evening, and families and loved ones will get together. Many businesses will be closed. Some won't be, but many businesses will be closed, and it will be a time for us to reflect on the gratefulness we should have to live in this country. The United States of America, for a Christian, is a place where we live. We have to avoid two extremes. 
On one extreme, the United States of America is not to be worshipped. We're not the promised land. We're not the greatest nation in the theological sense because God came to save souls, not nation. He used the nation of the Hebrews, the Jews, to minister to all nations. But sometimes folks can be more patriotic than they are loyal to Jesus. And so we have to make sure that we guard against that. But the other extreme which I think is more rampant in our day and age, where it seems as our society wants to question everything, is to not be grateful and thankful for the opportunity to live in this great nation, a nation that has set many people free from tyranny, a nation that is absolutely imperfect, a nation that has had many struggles, but a nation that has also represented freedom worldwide to so many individuals. And that freedom, of course, was given to us through the sacrifice of many, many young men and young women who gave their lives for an ideal. that We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And so we live in that tension. We want to celebrate and be grateful for a nation that allows us the freedom to share our faith and to worship according to the convictions of our conscience. But we also recognize that our nation is still very much in need of a touch from God. Our nation very much struggles. In fact, would you believe me if I told you that the greatest societal, cultural struggles going on today, the greatest struggles in our world, in our nation, are actually answered in the first few pages of the Bible. But believe it or not, think about what people are wrestling with now. Who's in charge? Who has the authority? When does life begin, and based on when life begins, whose life really matters? What is gender? This is a question I was not prepared in seminary to address because I didn't know it would ever be a question, but now it's a question. What is marriage, and why does it matter, and what is mankind's role or purpose? Why do we even exist? What is the state of our existence, and why is that significant? If you were to look at the modern-day struggles of our society, I dare say you could probably categorize all of them under one of those questions. And yet, I find the answer to every one of these questions in the first few pages of the Bible. The story of Adam and Eve is really not the story of Adam and Eve. It's the story of God. Creation is given to us in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis, and then the fall of creation is given to us in chapter 3. Now, most of the time, for you and I, we'll take a portion of Scripture, usually a paragraph, a few verses, maybe at the most a chapter, and we'll dive deep into it. But this morning and through this series, we're actually going to fly over some passages at about 30,000 feet to get an overview, an outlay, if you will, of how it works. And so this morning, I'm actually going to broadly walk you through chapter 1, a portion of chapter 2, and chapter 3 of the book of Genesis because I want to answer these questions and ultimately get to the answer we're looking for. How did all this start? Because understanding the beginning, understanding our start, gives you the opportunity to make sense of your day. In fact, at the conclusion of this sermon, I'm going to show you 
how understanding creation and the fall prepares you for the good and bad that you and I are going to face every single day in this life. And in a weekend devoted to celebrating our country, I believe that this study will help you be the citizen God wants you to be in these United States. How did it all start? Well, it started with four words. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. The most important word is the fourth word of the Bible. In the beginning, God. There is no reference to God's beginning. God was already at the beginning because he has no beginning. The Bible teaches us that he is eternal. He was, he is, and he is to come. He always has been. He always will be. He always is. There has never been a time when there is not God because God is before time. He is above all created things. And so that first question, who's in charge? Well, God is. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So who's in charge? Where do we get our authority from? We get it from God. Now, why is this important? Your view and your understanding of creation sets in motion the rest of your worldview. You may or may not know this, but you have a worldview. A worldview is the lens by which you view the world. To have a biblical worldview does not begin with Christ. It begins with creation. It begins with recognizing that God is the creator of all things, and he created from nothing because nothing existed prior to God. God in himself has always existed, and therefore from God all created things are created. And interestingly, if you were to read the rest of the chapter, they are created by his spoken word. My God doesn't have to break a sweat. He does not have to work like you or I do, for he is not limited in space and time like you and me. He speaks, and creation comes into being. So who is in charge, number one? Well, God is. And Genesis 1-1 answers that. But there's a second question. Why do we matter, and whose life matters? So if you have Genesis 1-1 open, you'll notice that down from verse 3 all the way through verse 24 is the creation account. I am a literalist. I believe in the Bible literally. I believe God's Word is true. There are portions of the Bible that are metaphorical. They're figurative, and they're to be taken as such. Genesis is not one of those. Genesis has portions of poetry in it, but Genesis is Hebrew prose. It is literature that is historical. The reason that we understand it to be the historical literature of creation is because it is one of the first five books of the Bible. 
The word five comes from the word penta, the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible, and they were written, of course, by God through the human author known as Moses. And so as Moses records the creation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he records how God created, and he created through the spoken word. He created in six days and rested on the seventh. Now, Christians debate all the time, well, well, could God have created everything that we see in six days? Let me just remind you that creation is a miracle. It's a miracle. And this is a divine book. So as someone who is a young earth guy, I do not believe the earth is billions and billions and billions of years old. I, I believe there is much evidence that you don't often read about which shows us that the earth is much younger than others would say. But the main reason I believe that is because I believe the Bible. And the Bible says God created, and he created in six days. Now, I recognize there are some who love the Lord Jesus who would take a different approach. They would say that creation happened over a period of time, and the word day does not literally mean day. Everybody has an equal right to be wrong, and they're just exercising theirs. I'm just joking with you, and with all due respect, I recognize that some struggle with this. But here's the deal. If you're going to question whether or not God can create in six days, then you might ought to question whether or not God can bring forth a baby from a virgin or split the Red Sea or put two of every animal on a boat or raise Lazarus from the dead, or die for the sins of the world. This is a book of divine inspiration, and by faith, I trust and believe. And interestingly, if you've noticed over the last few weeks with the overturning of Rome, there is this debate yet again of the nation's confusion about the value and the sanctity of life. In the discussions defending the atrocity, the tragedy known as abortion, there is absolutely no focus or attention given to the unborn child. In fact, it is taboo to acknowledge it is even an unborn child. And so all the emphasis is on the choice and the rights of a woman which that camp rediscovered what a woman was in about 10 minutes, the minute Roe was overturned. The interesting thing about the debate for you and for me is not that we ought to have, ought not have compassion over those in crisis pregnancy, compassion over those who have been placed in situation due to exploitation or rape, compassion over those who are facing intensely intimate and difficult decisions. It is not that the church should not run with compassion to those situations. We do. In fact, you do recognize that pregnancy centers that discourage abortion and encourage young women to carry these babies to term are also the very places in many communities where formula is given and diapers are distributed and financial assistance is given to those people. Don't believe the narrative that the pro-life community does not care for the lives of the born or for the life of the mother caught in a crisis pregnancy. That's just not true. 
But when you peel back all the layers of that, where is the root of the argument? It's actually found way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where the Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. If you turn over or look over to the side, you'll see in verse 7 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. There is no account of God breathing into the nostrils of any animal in the animal kingdom. And the reason is, is that man and mankind, ladies, man, there's a reference to mankind, not just the male gender, that man is created in the image of God, that we are image bearers. Now, do you see what happens in a society and in a culture that denies creation? If you deny in the beginning God and God created, then you are left to come up with some form of a theory of human existence. And of course, the modern day discussion and the theory is primarily around Darwinistic evolution. Now, evolution in that a biological organism's ability to adapt to its environment is a gift from God. For example, the people who live in the Andes Mountains today have larger lungs than you do because the air is thinner. So the idea that organisms, that animals, that humans can adapt to their environment is a gift from God. So if you define evolution that way, then we understand, of course we see the fruit and the goodness of God in the ability he's given life to adapt to its environment. Darwinistic evolution, though, argues that you and I are nothing more than highly evolved animals. But once you remove the divine nature from us, the being made in the image of God, and you reduce us down to animals, you then can make incredibly immoral decisions about which lives ultimately matter. In other words, one of the religions of our day is personal autonomy. You'll hear this a lot, personal autonomy. The Bible actually upholds personal autonomy. The Bible teaches that you have no less or no more value than the person sitting next to you in the eyes of God. And that you in and of yourself, as an image bearer of God, have value you have a certain moral standard that you should be treated by, and to violate that is an assault on your autonomy. But there's a difference between upholding personal autonomy in that every human being is in the image of God made, and so every human being has value, and demanding that personal autonomy mean that I am the Lord of all my choices. The fundamental struggle in the discussion of the sanctity of life is not that the church doesn't see the conflict and the sorrow that many young women find themselves in. We do see that. We should see that. And we can grow in our faithfulness to love people. But the conflict is, 
If every human being created in the womb is made in the image of God, then no human being's life should ever be cut short by another human being. And therefore, for someone who believes the Bible and believes the creation account, there is no room inside of your theology for the taking of innocent life in any circumstance. And and therefore, we default back to the Bible. The Bible clearly teaches that in times of just war or in the defense of life, life can be taken. It's certainly not ideal. It's a result of the fall, but it is defended by the Scripture. But any other assault on life not only violates the image of God, it violates the tenth com- or the Ten Commandments where the Bible clearly teaches that human life is just different than animal life and thou shalt not kill. Which leads, of course, to the third struggle that we find right here in Genesis 1. Well, once we determine that life is precious, what's gender? Look at the 27th verse of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heavens. I'm reading in verse 26 to set it up. And over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And again, the pronoun there is a reference to mankind. Now watch. Male and female, he created them. From that tiny little phrase, intense clarity. Male and female. So we not only have the identification of gender, we have the limitation of gender. Male and female. There are no other options. Male and female. But notice that right after male and female, we get the next phrase. He created them. So we know from the first few pages of the Bible, God made man in his image. He determined in his sovereignty to make man into two genders. He defined what those genders were, male and female, and it's all his call. He does it. So the second decision God makes for you to be here is your gender. The first one is to create you. But the second one is to choose your gender. And therefore, the idea that there is not a binary gender system of understanding The idea that binary understanding of gender, by meaning two, two genders, male and female, is somehow oppressive, it is a societal structural norm, does not gel with the Bible. People may choose to believe that, and that's their prerogative, but it does not gel with the Bible. The Bible very clearly, and don't you think it's interesting that of all the things the Lord could have told us about creation, he chose to address the most important things what seems to still be the things human beings struggle with. So how do we get to a point where people are questioning gender? Well, it goes back to questioning creation. 
if you explain away creation and we're just highly evolved animals, then animals can determine whose life truly matters. And if you explain away creation and there is no God in heaven who determines our gender, then you are left to determine your gender in, in the essence that it fits where you believe you are. Now, up until about five minutes ago in human history, confusion around gender was called gender dysphoria. And the reason that human beings labeled it that is because there are people, there may be someone in your life, there may be someone in your family, someone here may be sitting here, and you may have experienced this in your own life. There are people who struggle with gender confusion. Those people don't need condemnation from the church. Those people don't need to be excluded from being loved and cared for and given truth and encouragement and counsel. Oftentimes, the discussion of gender causes the church to lose her voice of compassion to those who are struggling with their gender identity. There is a difference, though, between recognizing that people truly struggle with gender identity, gender dysphoria, and changing the definition to appease the conversation of the day. This helps no one. And to think that we have a society now where people are fighting for the right to give children puberty-blocking medication under the delusion that the child somehow has the faculties to come to a clear conclusion that their biological body does not match their gender. Now, when you think about how terrible this form of child abuse is, you go back to creation. Why is it okay for us to say to the young woman or the young man confused about their gender that God loves you in your confusion, but he does not make mistakes? He made you who you are, and there is no biblical separation between your biology and your being, between your gender and your anatomy. And why? Because God made you in his image, and he made you male and female, which leads, of course, to that fourth area of confusion. What is marriage? Now we have people who are questioning marriage. They say marriage is a societal structure built off patriarchy. It is for the oppression of women, for men to own women. And so the idea of a commitment of a man and a woman for the rest of their life seems to be one that folks are theorizing has been made up. It has been created. Let, let, let me just say that often in these discussions, there is the idea of looking at all the flaws of marriage and reading that back into marriage. I know marriages can be flawed. I know women can be abused and hurt in marriages. I know that marriages can fail, and marriages can be a place of intense pain and suffering. But that's true for every single human relationship since the fall. What was God's plan? Well, of course we know that he made them male and female, chapter 1. But then chapter 2 takes the male and female, God made them in his image male and female, and it gives us a more man-centered approach and description of it. In fact, look at verse 18 of chapter 2. <clears throat> then the Lord God said, 
It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, if you were to read uh, verses 19, uh, you'll see where God said, Adam, I want you to name everything. I often wonder what Adam thought when an armadillo walked by. But now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, every living creature, creature, that was its name. Now, as a child, we learned, oh, Adam named the animals. But actually, there's a theological reason for this. God knew man was alone. Man didn't know he was alone until the hippo walked by, and he had a hippo. And the rhino walked by, and there was a girl rhino. And the elephant came by, and he had a mate, and the monkey, and the tiger, and the snake, and the lizard. And all of a sudden, Adam realizes, everybody got somebody but me. And I named all of them, but I don't see any of them I want to go out with. So the Bible says in verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds and the heavens to every beast. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he had made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I don't know how he translated it, but can you imagine that day? Wow. Finally, someone for me. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one Flesh. I don't want to be too graphic for little ears, but this is why we believe that the heterosexual union between a man and a woman is the only ordained way in which human beings should express themselves intimately, physically, and sexually. There are so many reasons for this. Obviously, it is the divine design of the human anatomy for the man and woman to be fit together. But there's something else going on here. When God made woman, he took flesh from man. When man and woman make marriage the night of the wedding, flesh is joined to flesh. This is why sexual sin is different than any other sin, because there's no such thing as giving yourself away sexually and not sharing a piece of yourself spiritually. This is why the guilt and the sorrow from sexual sin lasts longer and hurts deeper than the guilt and the sorrow of other sins. Now, praise be to God, sexual sin, like any other form of sin, can be totally forgiven, and God can give us a new start and a new life. I, I'm not here to ask you to live in your past. I'm telling you this is why. It goes down to the very root of how we are created a man shall join his life with a woman. And the societal structure of human beings, not the Western world, not the Eastern world, not the white world, not the brown world, not the rich world, not the poor world, and not the Marxist socialist world, not the capitalist democratic free world. No, no, Forget all of those. Before all those existed, it wasn't but two people here. They were Middle Eastern, obviously, created in the Garden of Eden. 
But th- th- there weren't Democrats here, there weren't Republicans here, there weren't Americans here, there weren't North Koreans here, there weren't capitalists here, there weren't Marxists here, there weren't liberals here, there weren't conservatives here, there weren't Republicans here. Th- this is just Adam and Eve, and God said, this is going to be the structure of humanity. A family, a nuclear family, a man and a woman shall raise children, and then when those children are of an age of adulthood, they shall leave their mother and father, and they shall form a new family, and that family shall raise children. Now, when the fall comes, it wreaks havoc on everything, including the family. Some of you were not raised in a nuclear family. Some of you were raised by grandparents. Some of you were raised by parents who adopted you into their family because your biological family did not have a place for you or could not provide for you. Some of you lived through the divorce of your parents. Some of you were raised by someone who had no biological connection to you. Some of you in this room this morning and those of you watching online are raising your family and you're raising children in a single parent home because somebody you made a commitment to didn't keep that commitment and they walked away from the vow. I recognize that families at Church at the Mill comes in all, come in all shapes and sizes and we rejoice in the grace of God over all our families no matter what they may look like. But it doesn't change the ideal and the standard and what we should want for our children. For every child in this church that is not called to a life of singleness, which is a call in the Scripture, and it is to be celebrated and and it is to be valued. But for those who are not called to a life of singleness, what we want is for them to seek out the person God would have them marry of the opposite gender, to join their life together until death do them part, and to then from that union, whether through biological reproduction or the beautiful gift of adoption, raise children who see the exercise of masculinity and femininity, male and female, leadership and union in the home. The narrative that you hear today is that that is antiquated and not needed anymore. In fact, some of the most godless systems of ruling people today, systems like Marxism and communism, do not want the nuclear family to exist and would rather put the brunt of child rearing onto the society and ultimately the government which is why there is a direct relationship between Marxism, socialism, and atheism. It is the dismissal of God so that when people are groping for direction in their life, you substitute God for the government. The government will give. The government will provide. The government will make the best decisions for you. The government will raise your children. That is not the institution God gave us to raise family and to build society. It is the union of one man and one woman who were created male and female in the womb after the image of God. And that union forming the seedbed for a society that produces children who understand they were created in the image of God, male and female. So this is why marriage matters. It's why we have to fight for it, and we will not give an inch. We won't. And when that causes us to be characterized as intolerant or old-fashioned or antiquated, I just remind you what I remind the staff all the time. When I die, 
I will not stand before anybody in this world. I will stand before my Creator. And I will give an account to Him as to whether or not I loved people enough to use my influence to help them to see His plans have not changed. Number five, what's our role? Is it to save the earth? Is it to go and to find any flaw in humanity and consistently point out injustice, injustice after injustice after injustice and never find joy in this life? What's our role? What are we supposed to do? Look what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let man, let's make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Skip down to verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and the heavens and every living thing. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning in the sixth day. So the purpose of mankind is to subdue and rule over the earth for the glory of God and for the extension of his kingdom. Now, what this means is, is that we are stewards of creation. It does matter, but it only matters to the degree to which creation serves the good of mankind. It is perfectly fine for us to utilize every natural resource as God has given us so that people can flourish, that people can eat, that people can provide for their families, and that we as the church may take the message of the gospel to people while they have time due to human flourishing. Now again, if you erase creation and we are highly evolved animals, then we are no more valuable than the earth or than the animal kingdom. Let me tell you how much more valuable you are than the earth. God saved you. He's not going to save the planet. Theologically, he's not going to save the planet. In fact, the Bible says that this earth will burn up, that God is going to destroy the old earth and create a new heaven and a new earth. Now, that doesn't mean it's our job to destroy the earth, but it does mean that my priority is not to save the planet. The planet is not going to be saved. My priority is to use influence and your influence to save souls because that's who Jesus died for. Jesus didn't come and die for the world, physical. He died for human beings. There is no scripture that tells us the animal kingdom will be redeemed or that the earth will be redeemed, or the oceans will be redeemed, or the mountains will be redeemed. In fact, Paul says all creation is moaning and groaning under the weight of sin, but humanity will be redeemed by the blood 
of Jesus. Now, by the time we get to the fall, we see all this come apart due to sin. And we don't have time this morning, but if we were to walk through Genesis 3, we would see the story. But Paul says it this way in the book of Romans. Paul says these words in the book of Romans. Therefore, just as sin came into the world (coughs) through one man, (coughs) and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, Paul goes on to say, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Paul is contrasting Adam and Jesus, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So the fall sets in motion God's redemptive plan to redeem that which he lost. Now, why does this matter? It matters because Friday night I was on my way to this beautiful worship center to watch the Creative Arts Camp production, their culmination. So many of you worked so hard in that. My little girl was in it. Of course, she was the best one. Every other parent feels the same way. And I got a phone call. Some of you may have seen it on social media, and it's okay if you haven't. But there's a family primarily associated with Bellevue Baptist Church down in Woodruff. It was in a horrific car accident in Jacksonville, Florida. The mother and the daughter were killed. So there's a man in a hospital down in Jacksonville, Florida this morning, undergoing surgery. He will be discharged. And then he will plan the funeral of his wife and his daughter. His daughter was one of my boy's classmates, and she was connected to the student ministry at our Woodruff campus. So shockwaves went through that community. So we quickly rallied and planned and had all the students that knew her come to the Woodruff campus. We had a prayer time Friday night for them. And I watched over 100 students gather, and they were hurting and struggling. In fact, we sent one of our pastors to Bellevue a sister church down there, to preach this morning so that that pastor, a dear friend of mine, Pastor Kerry Caldwell, who's lost a church member, a choir member, a teenager in, in his church, and the father was one of his closest friends. He's hurting. So our church thought, what better need could we meet than to help them have a word from God? So our youth pastor from the Woodruff campus, his name is Jordan Lanford, He's at Bellevue preaching this morning because we believe in all churches and we want to leverage our influence to help them. And I was looking at the sad faces of those teenagers who had just said goodbye to this little girl on the last day of school. Her name was Riley. She would have been a sophomore, precious young lady. And they'll never see her again in this life. And all of you know that high school kid that you lost to a car wreck. Some of you lost some folks who were drafted in Vietnam and never came back. Others of you have classmates that you have found out over the last few years of their death. We've all been there. We've all lost people close to us. A tractor trailer, and all indications are now that the driver was under the influence. But a tractor trailer crossed the medium and landed on their car, killing two in the tractor trailer, passengers, and two in the vehicle from Woodruff. He said, well, why? 
I mean, had the car been 30 seconds earlier or 30 seconds later, it would not have hit them. Why? And of course, I know that you hear good teaching and you know why. This world is broken. It's not okay. Death reigns. Some people die moments after conception and miscarriage. Other people have the privilege of dying in their 90s, surrounded by loved ones in the bed of a nursing home. That's the death we all want, but we all don't get that death. There will be people who will die today at the Gibbs Cancer Center. Someone will die this weekend on the roads. Death is all around us. Marriages die. Children die. Relationships die. Churches die. Nations rise and fall. And it has been that way ever since Genesis 3. But when I go to Genesis 1, I'm reminded God is over all this. He made it all. It's all for his glory. And the minute sin infected it, he said to the enemy, the serpent in the garden, you have bruised her heel, referring to mankind. But he, she, Mankind will crush your head. And then he sent a better Adam. He sent the Lord Jesus, who defeated death by dying a death no one created could ever die. And upon his resurrection, he said, I came to give you life. Just hours before his arrest, he said, in this life, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. A thousand years from now, that's what I told my sons. A thousand years from now, when you see Riley again, this precious young lady whose life was taken way too early, when you see her, because she was a Christian, she loved the Lord, very active in her church. A thousand years from now, when you see Riley, I don't think we're going to be consumed with the reality that she got to paradise a few decades before you. That won't be the topic of the day. What's going to matter is that you see her. That you're right. That you don't buy into the false narrative that we're highly evolved animals and that we're supposed to float through life and make the best sense of whatever makes us happy. No, there's a God in heaven. He made you in his image. Sin took you. He sent his son to die for you. Get right with him, obey him, love him, and enjoy him, and you will never regret that because how it all started for us is why today can make sense for me. Our beginning makes your today make sense. Praise be to the God who created. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for giving us the opportunity this morning to be reminded of it. Lord, I'm so grateful that you created us in your image. I'm grateful that one day on the streets of heaven, we will never, ever hear of a car wreck, a tumor, a cardiac arrest. I'm grateful that every moment of anxiety and anxiousness, every confused person struggling to make sense of their life, 
will all be erased. And in this temporary world that we live in, in this world groaning under the weight of sin, I'm grateful that you are good. I'm grateful that because of the gospel, the minute that precious baby left this world in that ambulance on the way to the hospital, she stepped into the presence of a king. I'm thankful that a few weeks ago, a young man named Austin woke up to serve his community as a deputy sheriff. But by the end of the day, he was serving the king. And he's with you. That's all I got. But it's all we need. In the beginning, God. Church family, I'm going to say amen. And when I do, we're going to stand and we're going to sing his goodness. I hope you sing it like you believe it. Don't let the world feed you a lie that there's something better than him. He loves you and your joy and fulfillment found in him and him alone will help you walk through the darkest days of this life. And if you know the Lord, when you and I march, march into that celestial city called Zion and regal robes are unfolded and given to us, we gather around the throne with the elders, with the seraphim, with the cherubim, with the millions upon millions who've been redeemed, and we join in and we sing. I think on that day when I bump into you, and I hope I do, one of the things that will echo in the chambers of our heart is God is so good. He is so Let's stand and sing that together. God is so today our prayer room is open folks would love to pray with you about anything going on in your life Two, behave tomorrow don't do anything your preacher wouldn't do enjoy your family I love you I'll see you in a few weeks God bless you